0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. Today's conversation is with Garrett Moore, founder and CEO of Agoris. First, we'll talk about Garrett, then I'll tell you about Agoris. So after achieving a degree in mechanical engineering while playing quarterback at Stanford University, Garrett's passion for high-performing teams led him to a small little pocket of the military, I don't know, you maybe have heard of, the Navy SEALs. He would stay there for the next 12 years, completing three deployments in that time, two in the Middle East, one in the Pacific. Um, And obviously, this guy has a real thirst, a, a hunger for challenges. So he also felt compelled to learn Hebrew from scratch just so he could earn his master's in cybersecurity from the University of Tel Aviv. He'll say more about his story in this episode. But honestly, this guy's background is just insane. Now, when his growing family needed a larger home, he engaged a general contractor to build them one while he was overseas, which in hindsight, he admits maybe wasn't the most brilliant idea. Anyway, after a string of bad contractors and frustration, Garrett realized how antiquated and ripe for disruption much of the building process was and began to formulate, in his mind at least, what Agoras would become. Fast forward a bit, and Agoris is now a VC-backed startup straddling three distinct worlds, construction, manufacturing, and software. But all three of those are converging very quickly as we discussed today. Their technology at Agoris allows builders to build better homes in a fraction of the time. Think of software-driven prefab without sacrificing all of the customization most clients want their facility in San Diego is able to manufacture custom home designs at scale and then deliver them to site for assembly in a matter of days with a fairly lean crew rather than the traditional four or more months most builders are used to. Super futuristic, very fascinating. Uh, Today we talk about the true size and scale of the housing crisis in North America and the demand for construction and trades that it is creating, which is indeed a problem, but it's actually... Good news for all of you listening. Uh, I also get Garrett's take on where technology, demographics, and macroeconomics are taking our industry over the next decade. And lastly, most importantly, we go deep on his team building and leadership lessons from a decade plus with the SEALs. You definitely want to stay tuned for that. It's right at the end. Now, Garrett's take on the future is pretty compelling. Some of you might wholeheartedly agree, For some of you it might ruffle your feathers. So if you're watching this on YouTube, let us know in the comments if you agree or if you disagree with his forecast and tell us why as well. That's it for me, let's dive in with Garrett Moore. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Garrett, I'm so excited to have you here. When your name crossed my desk and Agoris kind of like entered my consciousness, I was like, man, I really got to get this guy on. So I've been looking forward to this for a couple months now. How are you? I'm doing very well, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's hot. We got the fans on. It's warm here in the studio, but we're gonna stay cool, and we're gonna have a really interesting conversation about you, the Agora story, and uh, potentially the future of the the construction space, aren't we? Absolutely. Okay, so um, in the intro, I sort of I, I made mention of you and Agora's. People know a little bit, but I'd say it's fairly surface level. Um I I'd really like for people to know a bit about like uh the Garrett story. So tell us about the path that led you here, okay?
1: Absolutely. Uh it's a circuitous one and not one I would have ever thought, but now looking back, it was the it was it was a great experience and a great batch of like random odd jobs and connections that all have kind of smashed together in a really unique way. So my story is I uh, grew up in Arizona. Dad's a teacher. Mom's a flight attendant. Uh, sports and school were everything. So oldest of three kids. Got a chance to keep playing sports. Uh, got to play football and played quarterback at Stanford. Uh, always had a kind of an eye towards the physical world, so I got my degree in mechanical engineering. You get there very quickly, though, and you realize, holy smokes, I'm an imposter. Everybody here is way smarter and way more athletic than I am. At Stanford? Uh, what? Yeah, exactly. What, what am I going to do with myself? You know, I, I can't keep playing, but I love sports. You know, how, what does what this? What does this look like? And uh, I was doing an internship, uh, McKinsey, so consulting at the time, and I was like, Ah, oh, man, this is, this is not it. Like, where's the team? Where's the camaraderie? Where's the sports?
0: Did it feel dry? So you, that that consulting gig. Uh, did it so what? Did it feel dry? Like you were saying, there was something missing oh. for you. It just was a little corporate, a little top down, little white collar. Absolutely, yeah.
1: And not a knock against you know them or their culture, but I was you know still young, wanted you know a physical component, etc. So I took a kind of a, a crazy turn and said, I, I um, actually lost a, a a good friend at the time. Kind of caused me to go down a road of reflection. Said, what am I doing with my life? I want to do something that matters. Um, what about this military thing? I don't know anything about it. No military family. I grew up in Arizona. Oh yeah, it's it's kind of sportsy for adults. So you start to pull that thread, and then you you know, you start looking at Wolf in for a penny in for a pound, let's look at special operations. And then you start to go look at those. And, and eventually he started to meet some seals. And I was like, man, these guys are gods. I could never do this, but man, those are that's an amazing group of young men. That's the kind of person I want to become. I'll never do it, but you know, cool, good for them. And then it just plants this insidious seed that you, you can't get out until eventually I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to graduate early. I'm going to throw my name in the hat. Let's go give this a shot. And uh, so put an application, got picked up, uh, went to Bud's and, um, you know, never looked back. It was an amazing experience. So, uh, 12 years, multiple deployments, quite a bit of time in the middle East. Uh, during that time I married my childhood, sweetheart, uh, had three kids. And, uh, by the third kid, we had bought a house and we said just ridiculously naive hey, let's tear it down and build a new one because like a, a, young, a, a yeah. young mom with three small kids at home and a deployed husband in the Middle East needs that's more the to deal time with. To, yeah, yeah. to build a house. <laughs> Dang it. Like, what was I thinking? So of course we did that. I went through six general contractors, fired them all and eventually said, uh, I'm just going to figure this out and do it myself. I'm yeah. tired of the lack of professionalism that I'm seeing. I'm going to do this. And so the the little weird wrinkle here is I actually built it volumetrically. So a lot of the work was already being done off site in a factory. And so I came away from that experience. I still live in the house to this day and it's great. And now it's a huge blessing on the backside. But at the time I came away just pissed. I was like, how is it that we are landing rockets on the open ocean on barges? And I cannot find my electrician on a Tuesday afternoon to explain why we're not pressing forward on this job. Mm -hmm. So didn't know what was wrong. I just knew that it was wrong. And essentially that's what kicked off my my journey, my war path to a certain extent to say, I'm gonna get out of the military and I'm gonna gonna do whatever I can to use technology and special operations-esque culture to solve this problem because the need is massive. Housing is not going out of style. There's an, a decreasing number of workers that are coming into the workforce, and we're like five million homes short as a society since 08. So, this this problem needs to get solved. And why, why not me? Let's give it a shot.
0: So you kind of you conceptualized this whole um, thing at, at least uh, at a surface level f- while you were still while you were still deployed. You were still in the military. This was like this this construction, software, manufacturing, technology. A trifecta of sorts this this is an itch you decided you had to scratch uh before exiting the military and so you you came out of it with a, a bit of an idea a bit of a plan as far as what's next for you
1: yeah and a shameless plug i was able to start the company and kind of subsidize some of the burn by staying on the military's dime while i was instructor duty so it helped helped me get a little bit of a running start and this is a complex problem that, that has a lot of legs and so it needed some time to lay the right groundwork on people and capital and all some of the other stuff
0: yeah. So you, you just sort of mentioned a couple really important points that I want to dig into a little bit deeper when it comes to housing, uh, building homes, at least in the West. I mean, this, this audience, this show is sort of a North American thing. Let's look at our little, our little slice of the planet. Um, what's going on or what was going on on the macro level at that time that made you uh, decide to go this route to building homes versus the more traditional one?
1: So i I saw a few different trends going on altogether, and it's, it's kind of a caustic cocktail that just converges. So one of the things is global financial crisis of 708, oh everybody lived it, bottom fell out of construction. Well, the problem is you look back historically, just look at basic population growth. American society, and I'm saying focused just on the US, but I would say this is generally similar across. American society produces the need, so population growth, equal to about 1.4 million new homes a year. Mm-hmm. Tack on top of that, about 100 to 200,000 new units that need to be retrofitted. You know, They're 1930s, 40s homes that need to get rebuilt. So our demand as a society, about 1.6 million homes. So as a frame of reference, in 08, we were building like 2 million at the time. Okay, so yeah, supply glut. All right, cool. Housing prices got a little overinflated. Well, the bottom fell out, and pretty soon you've now gone 14 years since then. That 1.6 metronome just kept going, but society was producing 300,000, 400,000, 500,000, etc. And so now we have built up this debt of five and a half, give or take million homes. Mm. Now concurrently, there's a second thing going on. As millennial and Gen Z workers are starting to come of age and we're hitting that generational boom, they're growing up with technology and smartphones in their hands and so their interest in going into the trades, plumbing, electrical uh, framing, etc cetera, is not like it was in previous generations. So you have an increasing demand for the product and a decreasing supply of labor that's just compounding, compounding, compounding. Well, all of this starts to come to a head in 2018, 19, 20, COVID hits. People want to work remote. And now you just threw the, 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 the proverbial match into the into the tank of gasoline. And now it explodes, and housing prices just spike. Right. And even to a certain extent, housing prices are still ridiculously high, even with interest rates, because at its core, Garrett's viewpoint is that this is kind of econ one hundred and one: supply and demand. There's a tremendous amount of demand for this product called homes, and there's a decreasing amount of supply. Therefore, people are going to pay more for this product until that until it catches up.
0: <clears throat> the um, it's funny you use that language. I, I, there's a I do a uh, a talk at, you know, a few conferences and speaking gigs when, when we get to go do them called uh, How to Hire in a Talent Shortage. And I sort of frame up this exact same set of ideas the exact same way in terms of a micro econ graph, like literally day one of university supply demand, that's it, right? So I love, I just, it's, First of all, I'm kind of validated. Okay, we're we're on the same page. Maybe that was a good presentation that I built. If Garrett says so. Going back to the increasing demand thing, um, you have you have a, you know obviously the, this COVID boom, which simultaneously brings about mass stimulus. I think the number don't quote me on this, but it's like nine trillion with a T in new money that's been printed and injected into the economy. So that gets the engine revved. You have nowhere to go. I mean, this has ended now. But over the last two years, people haven't had restaurants to go to to go spend their hard-earned money on. They haven't had trips to go to. So a lot of people in renovations, construction have felt a boom. The phone's been ringing off the hook. Um you have this sort of like people upgrading as a result of COVID let's get out of our condo and let's get a home because we needed a backyard because there's nothing else to do. Anyway, the point is on the demand side, there's been a whole bunch of large forces that have really stimulated that sector of the economy. And at the same time, you have this decreasing supply specifically on the labor front, on the, on the skilled labor front. Um, And I I wonder if you maybe have a... Just going back to that for a second, because I just think it's such an interesting and at times painful conversation to have about young people today. I ask a lot of our guests this question. Like, do you have a... Do you have a, 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 a more, uh, do you have a take on this existential decline of the skilled worker? What's going on with demographics? What's going on with technology? What's going on with the tastes and preferences of young people? What's going on with the employer's ability to captivate them? What is your take on this decline of the skilled worker thing?
1: So I have to say, first starting point, I'm very proud of my generation because my generation is a little known micro generation called the Oregon Trail generation that sits right in the bridge between Gen X and, and millennial. Right. So I feel both sides. And so sometimes there's the, an urge to blast millennials or Gen Z and it's just like they're out of touch, and you know, all the, the typical negative stereotypes and vice versa is the same. I think it's just the, the raw math of, uh, or the, the, the raw dynamics of they're used to having so much data And they're used to having so much choice at their fingertips on a regular basis. And they've come of age kind of in that post 9-11 era where they're looking for a cause. They're looking to be a part of something greater. And they're not seeing that in construction. So I would say, I I, I caveat this. I'm... I'm in love with our industry. I'm in love with construction, but I'm not in love with its ways. Right. And so I think we as, a, as, a, as an industry have let that worker down because we're not giving them the, the dotted line to a vision or a purpose that's bigger than themselves. It's just rinse, lather, repeat, try and make a buck. And that transactional nature, I think is really, really discouraging for them when they wanna be a part of a movement or something bigger.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good take. And I would say to our listeners, before you get, you know, get your feelings hurt, we're not talking about you because you listen to the show and you follow Breakthrough Academy, and you have worked on your employer brand as we've discussed, like this whole sort of creating a mission, creating a purpose, using that as a means of communication to this younger generation and attracting them, uh, uh, attracting them with, with that sort of in your pocket is a huge advantage and it does work. And so uh, I, I want to be clear when we're talking about this, we're not talking about the high performers within construction. We're not talking about the progressive entrepreneurs that are actually ahead of the curve. We're talking about the masses. We're talking about the average. We're talking about the fly-by-nighters, which at this point still makes up a pretty large portion of the graph. Uh, just before we, I, I really want to get into like how you guys build and the systems you use. Before we dive in, anything, how far on the housing front, how far behind are we on this, on this housing? Crisis, at least in the states. Use the statistics that you know.
1: Oh, it's bad. Uh, put it into context. In order to dig out of this debt, you would need the top 100 largest builders. So your Lenars, Dr. Hortons, all the way down. Top lar- 100 largest would have to double capacity for a
0: decade to catch up. Top 100 that's builders have to double for a decade. Just to put that into perspective.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. And now you have a, another, a third compounding factor that's come out in like really the last quarter, which is with all the money that's been printed and all the generational wealth that's been accumulated over the last 10 or 20 years, there's no shortage of capital. And so what we're starting to see, uh, you know, my inner capitalist doesn't care, but my inner American is grieved <laughs> by the fact that home ownership is going to become tougher and tougher because your large, you know, institutional money is going to start to come in and buy homes and turn around and rent them because. Renting is really, really good from an investment perspective.
0: You're you're already seeing that, right? There's, uh, I'm going to botch the, I read an article like BlackRock, big money big smart money is coming in and buying huge tranches, these massive swaths of not low income, but also not high. We're talking big apartment blocks, it's m- it's huge multifamily because yeah. it's good business. And, it, and, it, and they think that it will be for many, many years to come. So I think, you know, as a millennial who just bought a home, I, I'm kind of passionate about this also. I'm like, the, I, I believe in real estate as a vehicle for wealth building. And I'd like to see more people have access to it. And I, I think that it's like, it's a the capitalist versus America. Like balance, that you're constantly trying to find. But I think we should do right by young people and not price them out of the market as quickly as we are right now.
1: Well, I mean, home ownership is, is it? I mean, it's an American phenomenon. But we've grown up with thinking of it as a as a as a right almost. It's like the American dream. You know, the Horatio Alger ranks, ranks to riches. You have the ability to work hard, buy a home, and then the home becomes the single sort of great, single. Greatest source of wealth generation for most of us as blue collar workers. That's right. Well, if all of a sudden you take that tool off your tool belt, once you go down the rental route, it's really tough to get back out of it. And so, if we believe that interest rates are not going back down to you know two and two and a quarter, and that it, it, inflation is going to be, it, this is a this is a, a generational challenge. And then you can, I mean there's a great article, a recent article in The Atlantic that kind of pulls the thread on when housing is expensive, what are all the other effects? And you've got you know, uh, fertility rates and you've got obesity and you, you all of a sudden pull all these different things and you realize actually housing affects a lot of other social implications, not the least of which is the one that we haven't talked about, which is uh, sustainability and kind of carbon emissions, et cetera. So housing is not just this one isolated thing, it's a, a canary in the coal mine for society writ large.
0: It totally is. The other thing that I think is um, is interesting when you're looking at some of these big picture numbers, and, and they're in the headlines every day right now, like when when people talk about inflation, I think it's important, probably a lot of you listening know this, but maybe some of you don't, and it's worth the reminder, when people talk about inflation being at eight or eight and a half percent or 10, whatever the numbers are saying today, it changes week to week. Um. That basket, that bundle is—we're talking eggs, bread, cheese, diapers, household stuff. That number doesn't even factor in real estate. It doesn't—it doesn't factor in hard assets. When we talk about inflation, it's actually significantly worse than what a lot of these numbers say, just based on the simple math equation they're using to come up with those figures. So. If that's that's a, If you didn't know that data point, it's it's one you can go do a little more digging on on exactly how they calculate that CPI number. But it is an interesting thing uh, to point out. Anyway. I digress. These are big, important issues. I feel really passionate about it. I think this is an important conversation. I think we understand the problem to some degree. We could bang on more about it. Uh, I'm sure another time. Let's get into the solution. And I want you to just maybe high level give us an overview of your guys's business systems and operations and how Agoris is attempting to uh, is attempting to fix some of this stuff.
1: So I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but labor is one of the biggest challenges. beats the drum, labor cost, labor quality, labor availability, etc. And the, the tried and true kind of uh, stump speech that people want to roll out is prefabrication. It's like uh, when people joke about nuclear energy. It's like, oh, it's always ten years away. Oh, this is this is the bump that prefabrication is all of a sudden going to hit mainstream. You know, Sears catalog has been doing prefabrication since long before you or I were born. Right. So. I feel like, to a certain extent, the industry looks at this and goes, "You know, fool me thrice, shame on you." Like I've heard this siren heard song it. before. Yeah, well, you know, what goes on? And so, with that as a backstop, I believe that the core reason the solution has not stuck is that nobody's actually gotten into the weeds to digitize prefabrication, to digitize construction. And so, by that, what I mean is, if prefab is just a job site with a roof over its head. There's only so much benefit you're going to get. Yes, your workers can have their tool carts closer to them and you can, you know, have, you know, fans and you can make it a little bit better. But it needs to get a lot better. And in in order for it to get a lot better, it needs to look like a Tesla or a Rivian factory.
0: Well, that's well, GNC. yeah, and and this the other thing too we were talking about this last week, Garrett, the um people love customization. Like nobody wants to be given three floor plans and two color options and one trim package. Like that's just not going to like, there's only so many buyers for that. And so that's, I think that's probably going to hang up at least from the consumer's perspective with this sort of this tired bit about prefab.
1: It offends our inner American. I don't want to have a house that looks like the person next door. Like, damn it. No, this is, you know, this is, this is how we do it. And so, uh, if you, as, a, as an outlier, as a, as a technology, cannot meet what the customer wants, then it's Good not going to sell. It's basics. Yeah. So, our belief is that these, these two, these two uh, lines of effort converge because this is what technology does really well. Computers can take immense calculations and complexity and boil it down into the simple. And if you can boil it down into the simple, now you can tap into industrial automation and start to manufacture more like a Ford Model T. Like the Model T was what it was because it was repeatable. Now we just have to connect the worlds with this custom design into a repeatable manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. And so our core DNA as a business, we're a technology company. We live in the world of manufacturing robotics as well as the software that feeds that. And so what this allows for is now you can start to connect the dotted line to how could we be building hundreds of thousands more units in a factory offsite? You know, at a Toyota facility, they'll drive a Camry off the line about every 57 seconds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what housing needs. Now, not necessarily 57 seconds, but that type of mindset of, we need to be able to produce it. Now, to your point about housing, it has to be custom. And so this this gets into the way in which we believe the future of construction is achieved is through two-dimensional panels. So when most people think of prefabrication, they think of the double-wide you know, uh, trailer park home that's getting shipped down the highway. Right. That is a volumetric 3D approach. Our approach is a much more cutting-edge, two-dimensional approach, which says, hey, when you have a bunch of two-dimensional panels, you can assemble those into a very uniquely complex structure. The analogy I use is, if you send our software a picture of the Death Star, it will tell you exactly how many black and gray Lego bricks you need to build, and then you can take those standard blocks and all of a sudden build this complex structure. Because the next thing that comes off your line could be a Barbie palace, it could be a, a Jeep truck, it doesn't matter because the building blocks have been standardized.
0: Yeah, it makes it makes um, it makes perfect sense. I, it's like you're making the individual Lego pieces versus the entire structure, and so you have some uh, you have modularity in it, like in that favors you by by going about it with that sort of philosophy. Um, can Can you just take us through high level, like these the three phases? So it sounds like there's sort of a digitization phase, a construction phase, and then an installation phase. How do you guys Create so first of all, manufacture and then build the houses that you build.
1: Yeah. So uh, I mean there's we, we simplified to three, but essentially in order to tackle this nut, you gotta track track four uh, there's actually four things. So there's the design, the make, the ship, and then the install. So shipping kind of gets lost because it's it's not that much fun, it doesn't but it's an on the website. component.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no one cares.
1: So yeah, so like, oh, that's a you problem. <laughs> so uh, when it gets down to design, yeah, you've got to be able to work with whatever the architect wants. So that architect basically says, hey, here's the, I know this local area, I know the building codes, this is what I want the home to look like. So then we take that design, that file. It could be ADU, single family, multi-family, it could be an apartment building. If you can build it on a light timber, it works just fine through the technology. Sends the file to our software, and the software says, okay, you want this, I don't know, two story ranch style, or two, excuse me, two story coastal style house, It's got all these little features. Then the software just churns and burns and says, boom. All right, then it sends out these files to the factory where it gets made. And so then you've got uh, a linear assembly line where all these 2D panels are getting getting built. And I'll pause real quick here to talk about customization because customization is a bit of a misnomer. When people think custom, they oftentimes are thinking two different axes, fit and finish, so I wanna change my paint, my flooring, my cabinets, all that kind of stuff or they want to think architectural flexibility. I want this master bedroom to be bigger, et cetera. But the reality is, and the dirty little secret to what makes our process so successful is that construction is built off of standard building blocks. In other words, how many times have you ever heard somebody call up Home Depot asking for a two by five or 13 gauge Romex or a circular stud? Like, no, we have all these building blocks built. I buy my sheet rock four by eight sheets, I buy my studs. So when, when you take all of those rules,
0: construction's actually not that custom. It's the not Lego a completely blank canvas, in other words. No. There are some there are some underpinning things here that we do need to follow and stick with.
1: And now it's just a matter of rearranging those. So rearrange them into a really beautiful coastal home, rearrange them into affordable housing. That the, the wall that you might build for a backyard ADU is Damn near the exact same wall that you're going to put into an apartment building. Of course, the rules are the same. Okay, maybe it's 16 inches on center versus 12 versus 24, but like there's a lot of standardization already baked into construction that gives us this running start. So I have to caveat saying customization is actually more at the end effect rather than the building process.
0: Understood. It's a it's a really good point.
1: So, okay, so you make, you make this custom home in a series of 2D panels. Now you can almost uh, condensely uh, stack it. So we ship vertically. So you imagine lining these all up in our special containers and trucks. So now you've got, you know, maybe one truck going down the highway and it's got an entire house just stacked together, all, all, uh, all in the same container, get to the job site. And now all of a sudden cranes picking, placing, picking, placing, and then pretty soon like, oh shoot, 24 hours, that house is up and running. And so this is the type of capability that can exist. When you use digital technology, because in order for that to work, your tolerances have to be tight. You got to be, yeah. you know, down down to a millimeter because you don't have time at the job site to all of a sudden start cutting stuff apart. So it, it really, the design really affects the manufacturing. Manufacturing affects installation. Uh, sorry, shipping and install and shipping affects installation. So they're all really connected.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um. How do you guys control excavation, foundations, backfill, grading, all that stuff like prior to arriving on site? There's some pre-work before your guys arrive or before the trades arrive or your assembly team, whoever's involved with your actual construction process. There's work that happens before then. How do you guys control for that?
1: So... I'm the technology guy at my core. Our business is a technology business. I actually don't wanna be a builder. The way we look at this is going, hey builders, the nail gun did not replace you. It just made the hammer a little bit less effective. We wanna be the, the successor to the nail gun, which says, hey, here's all this technology that's gonna make you builder faster, better, cheaper, greener, safer. And so what we're doing is we're sliding into their ecosystem and just accelerating the the most uh, labor intensive and the most time consuming, the most expensive parts. Mm -hmm. So we do not do everything to everyone. So in a house, when you go from trenching all the way to keys in hand, we wanna slice out the rough trades, which says, hey, from slab to sheetrock, that's our core focus and niche right now, because that's where we can add the most value and the most scalability, while still staying as um, lean and efficient as possible.
0: So long run, your end user is actually the builder versus the homeowner. Or a bit of both.
1: So I'd be lying if I said if we don't harbor aspirations of uh, greater vertical integration. Yeah. But right now we're obsessing over, you know, being an outstanding online book distributor, because eventually if I get that right, I can slot in DVDs, although those don't, those don't matter anymore, but kids clothes, and then all of a sudden groceries. And then pretty soon I can be doing a full end to end stack where I've got my own AWS servers and my aircraft and my AI devices, et cetera. So it's, it's increasing verticalization, but for right now, many, many businesses have failed because they weren't focused enough. And so we're trying to not re- repeat the mistakes of our forefathers mm. and just stay laser focused on being brilliant at a
0: couple things. And so with the houses that you've, uh, that you've done so far, who, uh, who's the trade partner, who does the rough Like how do a lot of those, like sort of utilities and, and sort of uh, very, very core central parts of a building envelope get, get, uh, get inserted and managed with, with your system?
1: So we have our own construction team. Oh, I don't cool. really advertise it because that's not our goal, but we do that because it allows for us to make mistakes and really learn internal to the team. Mm. And then as we mature and the product feature sets roll out and get more evolved, then we can roll it out to customers, knowing that we're tight a little bit more. So, as an example, when we do our kind of cutting edge R and D projects, we do them with our internal team, and then once it's gone through validation, then we can roll that feature out to our installers and our preferred distributors because now it's ready for prime time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. This is just such a, it's such a, um, it's such a new and fresh take on on a on a fairly. I'm not going to say old, but it like we, we have been doing things relatively the same way. Uh, Actually, here's a good piece. I'll just, I pulled this from your website, right? Most residential construction is done on site by hand the way it's been done for 120 years. Well, the tools have improved the process of construction hasn't with the, with different groups responsible for different parts of the process. There is little accountability, predictability, predictability, or quality control. And so I guess your guys' goal is to sort of um, vertically integrate a lot of that to start and then continue bringing in more and more and more over time. But this is this is a, a, an amazing uh, first crack at it. With all that said, and sort of the, the path that has led us to now and what you guys have built so far, I'm very curious to get your take on the future. And so the question is this, um, over the next 10 years, where do you think the fairly large and complex world of residential construction is headed.
1: I'm trying to fight my own internal bias because obviously I'm building a business around Be this biased. Future, but
0: It's a take. I, I no one's going to hold you to it. It's a take.
1: I think what's going to happen is this problem is going to get worse and worse. And when problems become big social ones, politicians weigh in. And so I think we're going to start to see the challenge of construction get tackled by governors and the executive branch. And unfortunately, what they can do really well is is wield a very large lever from a financial perspective, but right. they cannot innovate very well. Right. And so I think we're gonna start to see more and more national media attention calling, calling out this, this issue, like the AIDS epidemic of the eighties and nineties or whatnot, or global warming is another component to this. You're going to start to see a lot more attention and people just say, doesn't matter. Let's start trying stuff. We've got to fix this because now this is becoming a, a socially disrupting challenge. It's not just, Oh, here's an opportunity for some venture capitalists to make money. It's if we don't fix this, Fertility rates get adjusted. The way in which people live gets adjusted. The number of miles people commute to go to work is pumping more CO2 into the atmosphere. Like it's gonna to start to it's starting to start to become this bigger and bigger issue. And I think you're gonna see a lot more attention towards solving it. And I fundamentally believe that the only way to solve this problem in the next 10 years is a radical transformation of the technology that does it because there's no amount of labor I mean if you wanted to solve this labor problem you had to invent a time machine and go back four years and start training the plumbers electricians and carpenters to get to get up to speed there's just not the raw talent there and oh by the way if you want to just throw money at them and bribe them that's only going to further add to housing costs which are already high so i think you're going to start to see more and more of a war chant and a drumbeat get beaten towards this has to get solved we have to think of housing more like we think of vehicles where we can turn on and on a faucet and we can build more faster. And then when, when we do that, we need to think about the type of product that we're building because the build environment accounts for 50% of global carbon emissions. So there's a, a custodianship of the housing industry that has to get taken into account. And if if you build homes well, they can be zero energy. If you don't build them well, they can be terrible, terrible polluters because <laughs> of how much energy they require.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're probably right, particularly about the messaging around this as this Issue becomes more acute and more felt by you know, already uh, the lower class, but then it will be the lower middle class and then it will be the middle class. And then all of a sudden it's basically the majority of North Americans are are upset about this. Um, the political system will have no choice but to step in. And I think your comment about, they're good with large levels, really bad with the minutia and sort of the detail required to innovate. I think we all know that. So I could totally see them making moves on this and what exactly that looks like, whether it's subsidies or they, they you know, they're, they're giving out grants, to innovators like you, I, I could totally see uh, that happening. I think you're probably uniquely positioned to, to take advantage of it on the labor front. You know, you're, you're talking about if we um, if we wanted to solve this, we had to go back four years or whatever and get them trained. Then, um, I had a we had a guest on uh, a few months ago earlier this year, and and she she was actually an immigration consultant. I wanted to talk to someone about another big big trends thing. Um... And so one of the big takeaways that I had from that, because I was like, hey, like, what are we going to do here? I don't know that there's another generation coming. I don't know that there's like some website where all the good applicants are actually applying for jobs and like we just don't know about it. Like, It feels like we kind of just need to play the cards we're dealt here to some degree. What do you think we should do and what can you tell us about that? And so what she said about Canada, which is really interesting, and I I don't think this issue is quite as bad in the States uh, because your birth rate's higher and your population's bigger, but here in Canada, um, our population, population growth is going to stall out at the end of 2030 which is uh, eight years away we literally will just sort of stay at 39 million people we're not going to add to it and that's going to have huge trickle-down effects for our economy and basically her take on it as an immigration person was we're going to go heavy 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 into immigration here in canada uh, to, to start to solve that. But just to give you some perspective on the scale of some of these issues, this is not, um, this is not small potatoes. These are large forces that we are here as entrepreneurs, as business people kind of navigating our way, our, our way, our way around trying to understand and, and trying to make the right moves um, within. With that said, there'd be a lot of contractors listening to this who are more on the traditional side there. They'd be they, they're not agorists. I'm not doing, they're not this techie, but they're, they're nowhere near chucking the truck. These are very intelligent, highly capable, super smart contractors who are moving the needle in this direction with you. What should they do to stay ahead of this curve? Any practical advice for uh, a builder today listening to this?
1: I think that the biggest way to stay out in front. Starts up front with the plans for all the fancy robots and everything else, getting good quality plans, getting architects and structural engineers to communicate well, getting good digital plans that are not getting transcribed that are accurate. That's one of the easiest, lowest hanging fruits to set a job site up for success is, you know, I I use the analogy. You can either, you know, plan for a day and build in six months or, you know, plan for six months and build in a day. Now I'm obviously it's it's, it's a, you know a little hyperbolic, but the idea is it's not a lot of fun and it seems counterintuitive, but the best way to drive efficiencies in a build is actually planning and a lot of pre-coordination, et cetera. And you don't see that till down the road but that can be done with relatively low technology and even in, in getting up front i think some of the greatest technological advancements we're going to start to see in construction are on the software side so it's your revits your Bluebeams, your software and planning tools that are sitting up front and i think that's where they'll be able to interface with the technology the soonest
0: it's uh an upstream solution versus a downstream solution that's that's where attention and focus should go yeah
1: yeah. And I know it's not fun. Nobody wants to plan. I don't like planning. I'd rather just go out to the job site and figure it out. And I have to resist that urge because every time I do it, I'm like, oh gosh, if I had just spent, you know, measure twice, cut once. I don't want to measure the second time. I mean, it's good enough on the first time and Then I go to make a bad cut and I'm like, ah, dang it. I broke my own rule. I know better.
0: Um, it's, it's so good. I, I could, I, we could spend the next two hours just picking your brain on how these robots work and how the plant is organized and but I'm gonna actually tell listeners, go check out, uh go check out Garrett's site. We will link it in the description of this show. Uh they have a beautiful, beautiful website. Um, your web designer did a really nice job on that. You guys can learn all about their process, their mission, their vision. I actually want to shift gears here and pick Garrett's brain on some leadership stuff. And I, I hope you guys are 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 down for the ride. Um let's go back to the SEAL stuff for a second, because Okay. So I, you know, I read that, I just read this book. I didn't just read it. I read it a couple of years ago, but I reread it and actually put it on our, our contractors reading list episode, which by the way, if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. It came out a couple weeks back. Uh, it's called tribe on homecoming and belonging by Sebastian Jung. You've read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what that book really put into very clear perspective for me, what, and they're, you know, they're, they're talking about the veterans journey coming home from deployment. They're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and, and, and reintegrating into society. And there's things that I, uh, this is a comment about the military, but it's more so a comment about leadership and teams and closeness. What I learned from that book is that what a lot of veterans struggle from struggle with upon arriving home to their family who loves them and misses them and their society and their sports teams and everything, um, yes, there's some level of shell shock and they may have seen things or done things or been a part of things that really scared them. And they have to live with that and process through that. That's certainly a part of it. There's another huge part of it that we're learning about, which is there's a, um, and I'm going to botch it, so please refine this because I'm not doing a good job describing it, but there's a level of, they actually miss the level of closeness and that feeling of being a part of something really important, that's doing something that matters, that's structured, that's organized. And so there's they actually feel lonely in their own home because what they felt in battle, on deployment, was a plugging into a part of their brain, a deep part of the psychology that we just don't have in the modern world. And so when they come home, there's this bizarre paradox of you're with your loved ones again, and yet you kind of miss that that grind, that journey. So I'm being a little long-winded here, but I just want to set that up. And then again, you look at the fragmented nature of construction. It's very transactional at times. People will leave their job for literally a dollar an hour more sometimes. What did the Navy SEALs teach you about fostering cohesive teams, closeness, bondedness, and what can we take from that experience and hopefully inject into our construction and trades businesses?
1: there's there's a, a a lot um there's a lot to unpack there i would say in, in multiple levels one of the things that the teams have the luxury of that is somewhat tough to translate to construction is the the, the idea of selection and the idea of of being able to choose and so i think sometimes what we, some of your listeners experience is we develop a pack because we we know and trust those subcontractors that we work with over and over and that shared experience that you know hey we've been through it together we've had tough times and we've come out stronger for it that sets the foundation for for, for good teamwork because construction tends to be so transactional and so ad hoc sometimes it's very very difficult for a builder or a contractor to create that family because it's hey I, you know so and so is not there let me use that the, the person down the road and so I think one of the biggest challenges I've felt going from that world, coming home from deployment to the construction world, so to speak, is that lack of collective vision and teamwork. It just doesn't exist. And so when you go around looking for it, people are like, well, what's wrong with you? That's, that's not how we roll. But here's the thing, and this taps into kind of the inner psychology of what, uh, what you brought up in Tribe. All of us want to belong. All of us deep down, and I shouldn't say all of us, but the vast majority of us want to belong. We want to be a part of a family, of a tribe, of something bigger than ourselves. And so I guess my encouragement would be that can be taught just because that subtrade, that contractor, that partner, that whatever has not experienced it before and they don't think it's value When people start to see it, it becomes magnetic, and then they want to become a part of your team. And that can go all the way into hiring W-2 employees, all the way to to, to building an effective job site with the right superintendents and project managers, et cetera. Culture culture does one of two things. It serves as a tremendous magnet for like-minded individuals. It also serves to reject antibodies that don't fit in with everybody else. And so when you bring somebody into that culture that is selfish, that is, you know, egotistical and lacks humility, et cetera, when you've got enough cultural inertia, it just kind of rejects that person like you don't belong in this tribe. That's, those aren't our values. Go. And so I think that's probably the biggest takeaway is it's tough to build. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's difficult. But if you can build it, it lasts And it just makes going to work that much better because you've got a wonderful group of teammates that are like-minded in their vision, and their purpose, and their cultural values. And then it just makes life a lot
0: easier and more enjoyable. So, yeah, it's perfect. Nailed it how can it be taught? Is it going back to some of this like mission-based leadership? Like, is that, is that, is that the vision you're trying to cast for the team? Hey, this is what we're doing here. And this is the role you play into it. Like, how do we communicate that to our W2s, to our trade partners, to all stakeholders involved in our businesses? I'm not saying it's ever going to feel like we've just come out of buds trading, but are there some slivers we can, some kernels we can pull from?
1: I think the question of can it be taught is actually the wrong one, because I think it's almost impossible to teach, but it can be modeled and it can be learned. And so in that context, it starts with the biggest thing it's, you know, there's, a, there's an old adage like the best way to fix your culture is to fix your people or change your people. And so a lot of this centers around the hiring and screening and selection process. And don't get me wrong, I do this all the time, so I'm completely guilty of it. But it's like it's much easier to hire the guy, hire the guy that's a dollar an hour cheaper when you know he's going to be a pain to work with, and he's going to give you gray hairs, and he's going to be you know belligerent. And so when you when you are massively selective about your partners and your employees, you're pre-screening and filtering that filtering that out, so you don't have to undo those bad habits, and then you're you're shaping them into the likeness and image and culture of what you're trying to create. And then it makes it that much easier to graph new employees and teammates in.
0: So that, okay, perfect. With that said, I love this focus on selection, uh, because it's upstream of so many other things. We can work on training systems. We can work on an onboarding program. We can work on ongoing coaching, blah, blah, blah. I, and we do, and we do, and I'm not discounting that, but it's been my experience that that's maybe like 20% of the battle when the 80% is just like who you're working with in the first place. So what do you really like, I, you know, CEO of Agoris, I'm sure you are still involved um, with some of the personnel decisions that you guys make. What is it that you really look for where you're like, these are traits that I absolutely love? This is a two-part question. At the same time, what are big like deal breakers for you when you kind of sniff something out? Do you sense that someone has something? You're like, oh, you know what? Looks good on paper, but can't we can't have this. So what's the good? What do you really look for? And what are you attracted to? And what works within Agoris? And then the opposite, what really doesn't? So my number
1: one trait that I look for is self-awareness, because if you have self-awareness, oftentimes humility is the offspring of that. And now we have a framework upon which we can grow together. I am not perfect. In fact, I'm highly imperfect and very, very flawed. And if you come into this relationship, either unable or unwilling to recognize that you are flawed, now we have no stretch in the rubber band to try and grow together and overcome the inevitable dumpster fires that life is going to throw at us. So if you do not have that self awareness, how am I ever going to coach you? How am I ever going to teach you? How are we ever going to work through this together? And, um, I, I believe You know, humility and teamwork and uh, all those are other great attributes, but generally if you get self-awareness right, in my perspective and opinion, the others tend to follow. Mm -hmm. So the flip side to that, which is one of the easier things to try and root out, um, is I have zero, less than zero patience for egos or lack of humility, like period. How come? I will, I, so um i'm a little a little jaded here but from my prior line of work egos will get you killed and if you do not have the ability to check your ego at the door somebody's going to die that might be me that might be one of the guys in the platoon or the troop that is a recipe for disaster when you cannot hold yourself hold yourself your plan your idea your whatever at arm's length and go hey this is not about me this is about mission success inevitably nothing but collateral damage and a wake of bodies metaphorical or literal will will follow behind that person and let's just face it it's just not fun to work around people that have high egos like if you it, life is too short to take yourself that seriously and so i don't care how talented you are that is my number one like i just i cannot put up with it because it is just so cancerous
0: that is just such gold right there there i i think the um There's something, I mean, you can define ego in so many different ways. And I'm also not one of these people that thinks like ego is this absolutely terrible trait that you have to get rid of entirely. Like there's a, there's such, there's such a thing as healthy ego. You need to have something. That's what gets you out of bed in the morning. That's what gives you that swagger. That's what gives you the confidence to set big goals for yourself and have the balls to say, I think I can do this and go try. So there's a healthy amount, but when you get into the ranges where it's too much, what you described, where it's like um, it's like the addiction or the love or obsession of one's own ideas, and the inability to be objective about it, and say when critiqued, or when f- you know girded against reality and forced to go through the uh, the actual meat grinder that is the mission. When you're actually testing this thing against real forces and it collapses in certain areas, people with huge egos. Still defend it. They're like, no, 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 this is the right thing because I'm the one that came up with it. And you're like, bro, here it is in reality not working. Like, I don't know where, I don't know what ground you feel you have to stand on, but this is so there's, I just, the way you described it, where it's like it's a, it's people are connected or in love with like the things that they put forward versus looking at it from like a perspective of truth and what actually works, what's functional. So interesting.
1: Yeah. And I think when I say ego, what it boils down to is what is your highest allegiance? Is it to the company, to the team, and to the mission, or is it to yourself and your own career, your own paycheck, your own notoriety and fame? And those two interact, and, and sometimes it's it's uh, it's a little insidious, and you can't necessarily tell. But if at the end of the day, I you know think you're going to put your interests above the mission, then I can't trust you. And if I can't trust you, then it's really hard to build to teamwork and camaraderie
0: that's probably the, the most uh, the most basic ingredient you need isn't it um, well I, I talked to Paul one of our construction coaches and he um, he wanted he's really bummed he's not here by the way he sent me a, I was like I'm gonna talk to this Garrett guy what, do you, what, do you, what would you ask him he sent me a big block of things One of the things that he wanted to um, pick your brain on I think there's maybe some overlap a little bit but it's it's a slightly different question is like what traits lead to success? in a SEALs environment, in a military environment, and specifically, which ones parlay really well to entrepreneurs? Are you, I guess what I'm asking is like, can you describe the profile of a high performer, both in SEALs and in business? What do they have in common?
1: I think they have a ton in common, and this is actually one of my gripes. Is I think people sometimes tend to put military, and even the military people in the military, put themselves in like, oh, you know, this this skill set's not going to transfer, or um, I'll never make it as a civilian because you know it's it's a different world. Eh, not really. I mean, yes, it, it, there there are differences, but at the end of the day, there's a lot more overlap than I think most people think. So uh, I would say one of the very first ones is calm under pressure. There's a there's a saying in the, in the seals: calm breeds calm. Yeah, life is crazy. I get it. But it's going to be fine. And if you are calm, then your teammates and your partners and your spouse and your kids and it it becomes contagious. And so that is one of those things that I think is especially relevant for entrepreneurs because by definition, if you're an entrepreneur, you're just throwing yourself into a, into a series of dumpster fires. It's, it's never going to be calm. You're not you're not getting a nine to five where it's a steady you know banking job where it's the same over and over, rinse lather repeat. By definition, every day is chaos. So, uh, being able to be calm under pressure and uh, there's a phrase in the SEAL so, you know, my my ability to control my actions and my emotions regardless of circumstance is what sets me apart from other men. So that's essentially calm hey, the feelings I'm feeling, we all have them, can I subordinate them to doing the right thing and my actions, even though they're telling me to panic, to scream, to yell, to do whatever. So I would say that's, that's, uh, that's the first thing. Sorry, go
0: ahead. I just, I'm just listening along, enjoying it. The, the, the calm under a pressure is one. What, what would be another? I'll circle back to some of these in a sec. What, so that's, that's number one. What's maybe number two?
1: Uh, I think the ability to problem solve. So one of the things that I'm so proud of, of being a team guy, a SEAL, and what I'm so amazed by, by the people that grew me and groomed me and, and taught me, is the ability to solve problems no matter what. There's an innate, um, just, yeah, I don't, I don't care what the issue is, I'm gonna find a solution. Yeah, top employee just left, customer just uh, left, uh, you know, had a safety accident, whatever it is. It's just like, it kind of goes back to the calm, but it's, it's a new problem. I'm going to prioritize, I'm going to problem solve, and then I'm going to go ahead and execute a solution. And it's that uh, never-ending confidence that, yeah, whatever the issue is, good,
0: yeah. I'm, going to find a, I'm going to find a solution and I'm going to press forward. Those and two really need to Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No,
1: I was just going to say, it's, um, it is a skill that has to get learned, but it's increasingly important for an entrepreneur because there's no rule book. We're building the airplane mid-flight, so you've got to be able to solve problems.
0: I was going to say that those two really dovetail quite nicely. Like the, the calm one comes first because without that, the, the capacity to even entertain solving a problem is basically out the window. So um, let's let's let, give give us a third just because it's a nice round number and these this is such gold. We have got calm under pressure, problem solving. What's a third?
1: I would say the last one is. Uh Professionalism, And it goes a little bit back to, to this conversation we were having earlier. But to me, the mark of a professional is somebody that's self-aware. Self and that self-awareness leads to self-improvement. And that self-improvement leads to self-discipline. And so if you know where you are strong and weak, then you can either choose to mitigate and improve your weaknesses or double down on your strengths. And then through discipline, you can routinely leverage and extrapolate on those but if you don't, if you don't know where, if you don't know even where you're a, a starting place or you're not willing to have that your loved ones and people around you kind of point out your blind spots, then you're just kind of meandering because you don't know what you're good at. You don't know what you're bad at. And so, uh, one of the, the big things I always say is it's so much more effective to double down and lead from your strengths than it is trying to lead constantly worrying about all your weaknesses. We've all got them, but those are not great points of leverage. Hmm. It's, it's like you know, you're, you're a screwdriver. Well, you're trying to pound in nails. That's not what you're designed to do. Forget the nails. Focus on the screws.
0: Yeah, it, that's, a, um, that's like an old, you know Gary Vaynerchuk? He's a pretty uh-huh. popular guy. Gary Vaynerchuk, he's a, he's a big social media influencer guy. He, he, he always says this about business. He's kind of a modern day business guru. He's like triple down on your strengths. And essentially don't don't worry about the weaknesses, like find other people to look after those. I don't think he's saying ignore your flaws completely. Someone might take that no. too literally, but you're in the context of, if you're an a hole. Right. In the context of business, if you're trying to create leverage for yourself, you're probably better off looking at what you're exceptionally good at and just spending most of your time there. Um, we're running out of time here. I got maybe a couple questions left. How about a fun one? You're an ex football player. Uh, who's gonna win the Super Bowl this year? You got, to pick. you got to pick. I. There
1: are certain people where you're just. It's really foolish to bet against them. Forget the team. Forget the dynamics. Forget everything else. Betting against Tom Brady is not a great idea in general, just as like a, a, a from a statistical perspective. So, I don't know. I, if I had to say. I, I honestly like. Uh, I think the Bills or the Buccaneers have to be in, in the, on the very, very short list because of who's leading the helm for both of them.
0: Spoken like a true seal, you know who's come under pressure? Tom frickin' Brady, man. That guy, two-minute drill is like no one sports has ever seen okay this has been unbelievable i could go another hour maybe two but we don't have time uh where because people will want to kind of check you out learn a little more there's questions we didn't have time to dig into if people want to know more about you uh agoras and the very very cool things you guys are up to where should they do that
1: Easiest two things are to reach out and kind of check out our website. Um, but if you want to connect with me personally, uh, LinkedIn's the easy, the easiest place to start. We are, uh, it takes a village to raise a startup. It takes a village to raise an entrepreneur. And so I am always looking for like-minded construction technologists that are eager and passionate to help uh, push and move and, and prod and cajole this industry forward. And I uh, would love to connect, figure out how we can just stay in touch, professionally overlap, work together, um, all of the above. Uh, it's, it's all about the team.
0: I, uh, I really appreciate you making time for us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and, uh, we'll have to have you back in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Benji. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of contractor evolution. Uh, if you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.